if you knew my entire life, you'd be wondering what I'm doing here. That's a wonder. <laughs> uh, if you're new here, welcome. Uh, come up and see me. I'd like to meet you. Uh, if you've been here a while, you know since the first of the year we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, Brian started it off uh, kind of talking about the greenhouse and how we, we came about and blended in with another church. And we, we went through a time of uh, transition, trying to figure that out. But we've been doing this for three years, so we, we've probably kind of transitioned. So we're starting to look at, well, what's next for us? You know, here's a body of believers, and, and as one of the leadership team, we're looking at that. We need, to, we need to see some guidance because we have now become a church now. Um, you know, Brian talked about this book of Acts, how it was written, written by the apostle, or the, not the apostle, by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke was kind of Luke 1, and this is Luke 2. This certainly isn't lukewarm by any stretch of the imagination. But as he talked about this, when he started writing, writing this book, he said how in the first book he wrote about everything that Jesus began to do while he was here on earth in his physical ministry. And then Luke, the book of Acts, Luke 2, is about the work Jesus continued to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Kevin did a great job after that of talking about the Holy Spirit, something that at times we kind of neglect. Maybe we kind of misuse that, uh, but really tried to, to look at that and how important it is, it is for us to understand the Holy Spirit and who He is. I'm going to try not to say it. If I do say it, don't hesitate to correct me. How, how He moves and acts and guides and leads all of this going on at this time here as this spirit of Jesus is building his church in the book of Acts and continues to hold it together. And some of the scholars call this the church age. And we'll be in the church age here until he comes back. So all of this time, the spirit is living and moving and acting and guiding and how we need to access that and look for that. Brian also talked about then about uh, Jesus spending a little time with his disciples uh, with some last words. He actually kind of called a little meeting with them and, and gave them some last-minute instructions before he then ascended into heaven and how he kind of, in some ways, gave them a diploma. They graduated from being disciples, but being students into being apostles. Now they were going to speak this truth out into the world. And, you know, some of the things that one of the things that he did tell them, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, a small little area, Judea, which is kind of like the state and on into the, the rest of the world, all the nations. So he told them they were going to be that. But then he told them to wait in Jerusalem for this hold of the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Well, you know, as we know in Scripture, Jesus died rose from the dead, and lived and moved and walked among the people for 40 days. You know, we're reading scripture. He, he talked to his apostles. He, was, he ate with them. He was there. At one point in time, he, he was seen by 500 people at one time. And one of those people that he was seen by was his brother James, 
who his whole family didn't believe. He thought he'd lost his mind. They didn't believe he was who he was. It's a little bit different when he appears to you, risen from the dead, isn't it? He's proven who he is. A little different story. But then they're waiting there. There were, there were these, these men, women, Mary, his mother, his brothers, and all of these people were waiting. And so we, we kind of are going to look at now what did they do in this week or 10 days that they're waiting. So I'm going to finish up the book of Acts here. I'm going to read this largest chunk that we've seen so far. And it's going to be Acts 15, Acts 1, verses 15 through 26. And the word of the Lord Lord reads this way. In those days, Peter stood stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Peter stood up and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. Now it's in parentheses. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let, no, let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So some of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, <clears throat> who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we look and we see in this passage how Peter is speaking so wonderfully of your work and your words through, spoken through David, so that we know that the Holy Spirit is a he, and the Holy Spirit has been active since before the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. And Lord, we pray that you will quicken our hearts to see what is transpiring in this passage as these 120 wait and how they also see themselves in the scriptures and are obedient to what you've called them to be. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Peter gets up and says, 
Scripture had to be fulfilled. That's the key part of this whole passage. Scripture had to be fulfilled. In the Gospels, it is, you know, in researching for this, it is spoken of either by Jesus or others about him, Scripture had to be fulfilled nearly 50 times. That doesn't include all the other times when it is saying Scripture will be fulfilled in somebody else. This situation will fulfill Scripture only about Jesus and his life and his death nearly 50 times. So that's really kind of a big deal. And, and the, the, um, they're, they're all through Scripture. I don't want to read all 50, but I want to help you with one of them. We'll see Jesus doing this himself. And he says in Luke 4, this is very, very early in his ministry. This is after he was baptized by John, uh, went to the desert to be tempted by Satan. He goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and it says, chapter 4, verse 16 of Luke, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was, where it was written. This is Isaiah 61 for us. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim, li proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what is... What is it, the fulfillment of Scripture? A lot of times we call them prof prophecies, the old prophets, and many things were said about different situations. You know, if we look at these, these were really promises about factual events that are guaranteed to happen. At some point in time, they will happen. What is our belief sometimes about prophecy, about these promises? Sometimes we think it's a palm reader that's going to tell you your future. We really, maybe, maybe we believe it, maybe we don't. Uh, sometimes we think that people can get and kind of do some little proof texting, word picking to try and fit whatever they want. And there's all kinds of beliefs that we have in that. And then it could actually be true. I do know that John 1, the Apostle John, who was here in this group, who writes maybe 30 years later after this event, he came to understand this when he said, the Word was God. The Word was with God. And he went on to say, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling place among us. He, he connected how the very words that were breathed out by the Holy Spirit, one of the Trinity, all in agreement, all of the same mind, were spoken out through authors in these Scriptures. And these words were in some ways, as much as Jesus as when he stood and spoke that to them in person. So we understood that. You know, whether you believe things or not, we can verse pick about things or not, there are some things that are very, very precise about these prophecies. Isaiah, oh, what is it? I, I can't remember. The, Isaiah 44, 48, something like that, talks about a guy and he's given a specific name. 
And this is written in probably the 8th century B.C. about a Persian king, pagan king, who would be, who was not even born yet, who would end up letting them out of captivity to come back into the promised land, and it names him Cyrus. Pretty interesting. 150 years before he was even born. Specific name. Kind of hard to pick and, pick and choose what words fit that, but that's what he said. Okay, so we have Peter, the apostles. How did they come to understand really these scriptures? Because we knew they had a lot of, lot of different ideas about who the Messiah was. He was supposed to be a military leader. He was supposed to all, all do all these crazy things. How did they come to understand this? Luke, Luke writes about this, this same kind of pre-ascension meeting account in the Gospel of Luke, in, in Luke 22, 24, starting at verse 44. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are all witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you remember when we first started this series, and I'm sure it's a story a lot of you are familiar, were familiar with, it talks about the two guys on the road to, to Emmaus. And that takes place after Christ is crucified. We have a couple of guys that are, that are believers. They're going back to their little small town of Emmaus. And along comes this guy. They don't know who he is. And they're talking. They're talking. Well, they, they get to Emmaus. They invite him into their home. At first, he kind of balks on it. Well, he goes in, and, and they eat. And, 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 and this guy starts talking to them about the Scriptures. And, started, and, and then they, he really starts to explain these things, all that had happened, and then they finally understood and saw that it was Jesus. Well, Jesus opened their eyes to reveal who he was or not. I don't know. But the thing that they said after that, he says, they said, did not our hearts burn when he opened the scriptures to us? It's the same thing happened with these guys. Whether this was a supernatural event or just clear, clearing up their understanding, they, became to, they came to understand that all of the scriptures were breathed out by him they were talking about him. They were talking about future events that were going to happen. They were talking about how they're supposed to live their lives. But they were really all from God. So in opening their minds, they became able to not only see how the Scripture had been fulfilled, how it would be fulfilled in the future, but also how its, its fulfillment speaks into their present situation. What's their present situation? They're waiting. They're waiting for the promise of the Spirit sent by God. Jesus said, in not many days. They don't know how long that was. Now, we have the privilege of knowing, and we're going to read about it, we're going to hear about it next week. It's Pentecost. It's about a week or ten days away. So they're waiting. They're praying. They're worshiping. But then they came to understand what has really transpired, maybe in their conversations. He speaks about Judas. Scripture had to be fulfilled 
by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us. He was in the same ministry as us, but he betrayed him. They knew this now. At the Last Supper, they didn't know this was Judas. They didn't know who it was. I don't know whether they, they realized it at the garden when they saw him leading the soldiers in to take Jesus captive. I don't know. But, but they're understanding that now. And they're understanding it through the Psalms. Now, we don't necessarily always think about the Psalms being prophetic scriptures. We, we, don't, even, we, we don't even understand the full context of how, would, how, they, would have, how would have, they have understand the Psalms. How would this group of people who, some may have been illiterate, they weren't scholarly people, how did they think about this and knowing the songs? Well, the songs, the psalms many times were meant to be sung. If you read in the psalms, you'll see sometimes a song of ascent. That means they would sing this going up to the temple because it was the highest point in the city. There were songs of descent. So they would remember these, just like we remember the lyrics to the songs that we sing. Or the old hymns. How many people, when they say, well, we're going to, you know, I surrender all. I don't, I don't even need to see it. I can sing it. I know the words. That's how they learned these. They may not have understood it, but Jesus opened their minds to these scriptures. There was another, there was another kind of psalm. There's psalms of ascent, psalms of descent. There's one called imprecatory psalms. Now, study that. There's going to be a test later on about that. But these are actually psalms of kind of lament, sorrowful about things that have gone on. You know, oh, Lord, you know, save me from these situations. And, and so, you know, they're, they're songs about grief. But also, some of these imprecatory psalms have a curse associated with the situation. Um, Paul looks at Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a, is a psalm given to David by the Holy Spirit that is about a friend that David embraced, treated him as a friend, brought him into his crew, talked to him, loved him, but he betrayed him. And then there was a curse that came upon that individual. And that curse was, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. This field of blood was purchased with the money that Jesus had gotten, this blood money. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem knew it and nobody would ever live with it. And also, this curse says that he would actually have no descendants that would ever be alive to live in it. So this is a curse. So then they correlated this with Judas. This was who he was. And that spoke directly in their, their present situation because they had just lived through this. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, and they came to realize this. But they also realized they had some unfinished business. They saw in Psalm 109, he's quoting from verse 8, there's another song of lament. 
with other ramifications to it where it says, let another take his office. Judas is no longer in that position. He betrayed. Jesus actually spoke to them. How would they make some sense out of this? They were once 12. Judas has betrayed them. Now they're 11. What, you know, do, do they need to do anything? What they, should they do? Jesus, Jesus has said this, Matthew 19, 28, <clears throat> 28, excuse me, as he quoted this, and he said, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, this new creation that he's going to bring down, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have, who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a future event that's going to happen. They were 12. Judas has betrayed. Now they're 11. We've got 12 thrones. What are we going to do? So this is really the first action that they've taken to some degree on their own without Jesus standing there in person and guiding them through this. They relied on the Spirit. They had to choose a replacement. So one of them who have, who have accompanied us during all this time that Jesus went out and in among us through this whole ministry, beginning from the time that Jesus was baptized by John the baptizer until his ascension. They knew the 12 apostles had been there the entire time. They knew who they all were, to some degree what their qualifications were. They were with him from the beginning, the entire ministry, all the way up until he ascended into heaven. That's who they should be. So they reviewed the folks that they had. They came up with two guys. The guy with three names, Joseph Barsabbas, also called Justice, really fairly common in that time, and Matthias. Well, how do they decide that? They only need one. How would we decide it? We'd have a big campaign. We'd get uh, political action committees together and a lot of money, and, but they, they're not doing any of that. They brought those two guys before. We could say they brought them up front. And they prayed. Verse 24. Lord, you know, you, you who know all the know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen. They cast lots. You guys familiar with that at all? It's not something we do too much today. In the Old Testament, they cast lots a lot for quite a few different things. Things that they were really inquiring something of the, of the Lord that they couldn't ascertain, they couldn't understand. Uh, all the way back in, in, in Exodus 28, uh, Moses' brother Aaron uh, was the, the, the head priest, and he had this scarf type thing. It's called an ephod, and, and they had these two stones here that we have in there. One was... Uh, Urim and Thuman, I think they had the names on it. We don't know what was inscribed on it, but somehow they could throw those out and, and inquire God, and God would tell them, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. 
they used that when they were going into the promised land to divide out who was going to get what, what area of land. Could you imagine they're going into that situation and they, you know, God gives us a promised land. We've got 12 tribes. Who's going to get what area? Oh, this tribe of Benjamin. Oh, this tribe of Judah. And they just keep going like that. So, they, so it was much more common in that world. They actually used it in some of their some of their religious ceremonies, their festivals, Day of Atonement, they had two goats. One was going to be sacrificed. One was the sins were going to be prayed on. It was going to be sent out to be destroyed in the desert. They didn't know which one really should be which. Should be which. They cast lots. They relied on the Lord to tell them which one it was. Now, we, have to, we also have to note that this was something that was even practiced in pagan cultures. Um, and there was a specific prophecy about that happening that Jesus said. It's in Psalm 22, they'll cast lots for my clothes. And the soldiers at the cross, the Roman soldiers were casting lots for Jesus' clothes. So it was a little bit more common than what they, we think. We don't use it too much today. There are actually some people who still do use it. Uh, the Amish use it. If they're choosing a minister, say you have a minister passed away, they need a new minister. If their congregation has gotten so large that they need to divide and they, and they choose a new minister, uh, they go through a process of picking four or five, maybe six fellows. They have them up. This is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They, they do this to this day. They'll have got four or five guys, they got four or five Bibles. One of them has a slip of paper in it. The one that gets that slip of paper is their minister for the rest of his life because God chose him. You know what's, <laughs> what's on that slip of paper? Proverbs 16 to 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They trust the Lord in choosing things that they can't necessarily ascertain themselves. So what do we look, what, what has really transpired in all of this picture? We have a group of people <clears throat> now that lead, led by the apostles. Jesus is no longer physically present to lead them, to guide them, to speak to them, but they do have access to the Holy Spirit. They come to a situation, they ascertain what Scripture says from past. We ascertain what Scripture prophesies in the future. They also see what it speaks about their present day, looking into their situation that guides them in what they should do. They make that decision, and they're obedient about it. They looked to the Scriptures to provide not only clarity about their present situation, but also to provide them God guidance as what they, what they needed to do in their present situation. That doesn't necessarily seem like a pretty remarkable thing to some degree. They're being obedient, they're waiting, they're just replacing Judas who was gone. But what is that application we can use for us? There's an application in every bit of Scripture. What's the application we can use for us? You know, as we're going through our lives, oh, from this high up, what do, you, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? Where do you want to go to school at? 
What do you desire to do? We're all asked those situations. Those, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. You decide you want to be a doctor. Well, what do you do? You start putting a plan in place. Your agenda. Here's how I become a doctor. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this so I can become this. We set our agendas based on the desires that we want to be. There are agendas. Our desires, we formulate an agenda. It's a purposeful plan. This is God's agenda. We like to say it's God's plan of redemption, but he's got an agenda because there's actions that he's taking throughout this. Uh, You know, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a little kid, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be Batman. Let's face it, that's, that's cool. You get, the, you get the outfit, you get all this belt and all these tools and a cool car, and no matter what, you're the hero of every story. Well, I wanted to be Batman. I just kind of turned into an old fat man. You, know, so you can imagine my disappointment in that. Okay? But whose desire was that? It was mine. Whose agenda is that? It was mine. We've all had them. Sometimes when even we have, as Christians, great thoughts about good and glorious things, we can set our own agenda. But if we don't really look into the Scriptures, we maybe think we are hearing the Holy Spirit, but we're actually just hearing ourselves talk. There's a real danger in that. Ephesians 2.10. The Apostle Paul was speaking to this church in Ephesus. He talked about how glorious it was that this was a gift of faith, not of your own doing. This is who you are. And he goes and he says in this, For we are his, God's, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There may be some of you here. I I know I was. I came to faith in a church. And I'm going to paraphrase some of this that essentially was glad that I came, got me baptized, have a seat, Here's your admission ticket to heaven. Try and live somewhat of a moral life. You know, maybe don't kill anybody or things like that. But there wasn't, there's nothing else. And I thought that for a little while until I started reading Scripture. Scripture does not line up with that. God has an agenda for our lives. And in those agendas, what we got to look at is not necessarily everything in the future, even though we're looking at what next, what's next. We have to look at each and every one of us are here and now. We all have them. You know, whether you're a kid, a student, a young adult, <clears throat> somebody's not really so young anymore, you're an employee. You're here now. You might be single. You're here. You might be married with no kids. You're here. 
You might be married with a bunch of kids. You're here. This is who you are. It's very easy for us to, to not really look at the Scriptures to see about who am I supposed to be here because it speaks to that. Just as it spoke to these guys in their situation. Now, what if, I, what, what if there is a, 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 a guy or a gal, you know, they, they, they get inspired, they read some things in the Bible, they read a book, and, and they kind of come up with a desire that I really want to go to some place in the world that there's not been a Christian for a thousand years. There's nobody there. I want to go talk to them. It's great and glorious. Unless you look at your situation, God's given you a spouse, four or five kids, a mortgage, a job. This may be where your here is. Maybe our desires want us to go out there. God calls people to do that. I'm not trying to say that. I'm trying to dissuade anybody from going in. But sometimes it's our desires and not his here and now for us. So we really got to look at that. You know, God talks about who we're supposed to be as husbands, who we're supposed to be as parents, who we're supposed to be as wives, who we're supposed to be as employees. He doesn't give any answer, every answer to everything. I mean, there's no, where should we be, go bowling at Saturday night? There's no, there's no answers for that. But how do we live this life as we're being witnesses for him? Because we're here for a purpose. There is a guy I'm going to talk about. A lot of you guys know him. And I want to show you how God sovereignly looks, works in these situations. Rusty, Toad Vine. I asked him if I could talk about this. Rusty is the executive director of His Hope Ministries. It is a ministry for recovering heroin addicts. He's associated with Teen Challenge, which is a rehabilitation situation for them. Rusty himself was a former heroin addict. Okay? There's more to that story. Rusty was a pretty good kid. But there was something about Rusty that was different. He was a very gifted baseball player. I talked to his dad, Dale, about it. He'd talk to me, oh, man, I mean, he was good. You know, I, get, I associate with some of the older guys around Miamisburg that, that I think they know every stat and everything about every other sport in Miamisburg high school sports since 1911. And they could tell you that. And they'll say, he was a shoe-in for the pros. Absolutely going to go. What happened? Heroin got a hold of him. Ruined it. In God's sovereign plan, and Rusty knows this, we've talked about it, he was never going to be a baseball player. He was molding him to be who he is Right here. Right now. He does the same things with us. You know, there are people that will look at this and say, oh man, he, he blew that. He threw it away. 
Uh, okay. Was God organizing that? He orchestrates most everything that happens in this world, folks. Rusty was never going to be a baseball player. Looked like it to us. Looked like it to a lot of people. He was going to be this Rusty, former heroin addict, who is helping other people do this. That's not the only thing he is. In his here and now, he gave him a wonderful wife, Corinne, who, I'll say it, she really shouldn't be given some kind of sainthood for, <laughs> really, seriously. I know I'm not the only one who thinks that. He's given him, he's he's him a wonderful wife, so he's a husband. He's given him three wonderful kids, so he's, he's a dad. He's not only rusty former heroin addicts doing this. He's a, he's a husband. He's a dad. That's his here and now. Scripture speaks to who he should be. Okay. Each and every one of us have a here and now. There's some similarities. There's some differences. But Scripture speaks to each and every one of those situations. What is your here and now? Are we going to do it perfectly? No. But he gives us the gift of repentance. When we look and see, man, you know, I'm not being a very good husband right now. I'm not being a very good dad. I'm not being a very good employee. He's a we, we can repent of those things and go back to what he wants us to be. He, to all of us believers, we are his workmanship. He does things to create us, to make us in Christ Jesus for the good works. This says that he planned, prepared beforehand. You have good works to do in your here and now. I have good works to do in my here and now. Scripture talks to whatever word that is. Same with these situations here. God orchestrates your life. You know, where are you? Where, where is your here and now? There is a here and now that he has orchestrated for you. There will be a what's next. But we're right here and right now. We all have unfinished business. What do we need to do to see who we're supposed to be in our here and now? I encourage you to look at Scripture. Read what God has designed for us to be. Witnesses in this lost and dying world. Witness in your family. Witness to your kids of what it looks some, like somebody that's trying to follow this even though they fail regularly and need to repent. What kind of example are we going to be in this world if we don't look any different than the outside world? He has a here and now for all of us here in this group. It isn't just all our individual personal relationship with Christ. He has a here and now for us. What's that here and now for us? And that's what we're looking at. So I'm going to close with this. I can't stress the importance of being in Scripture. It is God's actual words. He used men as pens to write it with. And he has a message and lesson in it for each and every one of our situations, for each and every day in our, of our lives, or each and every here and now that we live in. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the gift of your grace and this gift of faith that you have so graciously lavished on us. Lord, we definitely need your word, your written word, your word of the Holy Spirit to speak through us, to us through it to guide our lives as we wait for your coming of which you have promised. Lord, we love you and we give you all the praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.